Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and you're listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. We all know that the fashion industry is brutally competitive and it takes loads of hard work to get ahead. The problem is that everyone's secretive and tight-lipped about their ways. After working as a designer and educator for over a decade, I wanted to help break down those barriers and bring you valuable knowledge from industry experts, and this show is exactly where you'll find that. Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. Welcome to another episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, and today I am chatting with Thea of Polychrome. Polychrome is an online print studio that Thea founded after working about 20 years in the industry. So she worked as an employee, she worked as a freelancer, and she did all sorts of different things. And she ultimately found some pet peeves and some things that she was really frustrated with in terms of how the print studio space worked. So she decided to start a whole business to figure out how to solve those problems. And whether you are a textile or surface designer or not, there's so much value to get out of this episode. Thea and I talk about a lot of things um, in relation to just getting started and like how do you know when you're ready to launch, whether that means launching your brand or launching your business or kickstarting your freelance career or applying to your next dream job, getting over some of those mental barriers that you have in your head about doing that. She also talks about some of the logistics of working with remote people and remote teams and some of the tools and resources that she's figured out to solve those problems. And if you are a textile or service pattern designer, she talks a lot about how she has her studio set up, what she sees working in the industry, you know, how she's kind of thinking about and competing with less expensive options like Pattern Bank, her thought process on protecting designs and what to do about people out there stealing your designs when you need to post them on Instagram or in your portfolio and her thought process on that. So tons of great value in our conversation that I know you're going to love so much. Now, before we get to the interview, quick heads up that SFD is way more than just a podcast. So if you are listening for the first time or maybe one of the first times, um, I would love to share all of the other resources and free templates, tutorials, ebooks, all the other stuff that we give away here as part of Successful Fashion Designer. So the best way to do this is to go on over to sohidi.com slash email. It is S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com slash email and drop your information there and we will deliver you on a silver platter all of our best free resources. Again, templates, tutorials, things on tech packs, on Illustrator, on freelancing, on landing your dream job, all sorts of great resources, no matter what you're doing in the fashion industry. We'd love to share them with you. If email is not your thing, I do also hang out over on Instagram and you can find me there at SoHeidi. Again, it's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I. All right, so now let's jump into the interview with Thea and hear about what she is doing with Polychrome. Welcome, Thea, to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. Can you please start out by introducing yourself to everyone and letting us know who you are and what you do in the fashion industry? Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm, I've been excited about our interview. So my name is Thea Perez. I've been in the fashion industry for quite a long time at this point. It's been about it's over 20 years, believe it or not. Um, and my uh, career has sort of run the gamut from uh, design school, having a traditional job up until the 
current um, position that I hold, which is the head um, and owner of a company called Polychrome, and that's at polychrome.design. We provide print patterns and trends to the fashion industry. So I've kind of shifted, and now I run this B2B where I get to help solve problems for the brands that um, we want to be working with. Awesome. So I want to chat about Polychrome and everything that you do um, and how you run your team because before we hit record, we had some little conversations about some of the the setups that you have working with remote people and and other things I think listeners will find very valuable. But before we get to that... um, what? How did Polychrome really evolve? Because I think there's a lot of people listening who may be working as a designer for a brand or they may be freelancing or something like that. And they might have this idea to, I mean, not to take your business, but like create a print studio or, you know, create some business to business service that they see a gap in the market for. So how did that all happened and how did you transition from maybe being like a more traditional employee and I know you chatted with me earlier and mentioned you were a freelancer as well to like really launching your own business and creating this bigger thing well it's sort of believe it or not it sort of started with um, a pet peeve of mine (laughs) Um, and I think that's the impetus for a lot of people to start businesses where they say there's got to be a better way than this um, so as I mentioned before, I, I've had kind of a long and varied career, um, starting off like working for brands, just like most students right out of school. And then for many years as a freelancer and contractor. And during that time, I was often in the position where I would have to go and buy prints for either clients or the employer that I had at the moment. And, um, anyone who's done this is going to sound really familiar for, for those of you who haven't had a chance to go do this yet. Um, there's really, historically there have been like two main ways to get original print designs other than doing them in-house all on your own and um, designers would either go to print shows um, print shows like print source or surtex places um, trade shows that are happening in new york or in europe and there's probably some on the west coast but i haven't had an occasion to have to go out there for a print show um When you go to the trade shows, there's tons of vendors there that are selling these original print designs. Um, For the fashion industry, it's pretty standard that they get sold with a transfer of copyright. For other industries, sometimes these are sold by license so that the original creator could sell them again and again and again in different ways to different industries. Um, The other way is, is very similar. It's getting those same print studios that might be showing at these print shows to come um, into your office. So if you're working for a larger brand or you're working for a brand that's kind of in a fashion mecca, like where there's a lot of other brands in your area, they might actually travel to come and see you. So you'll be getting a phone call from print studios saying, hey, we're going to be in your neck of the woods seeing other clients. Can we like book a time to come by? And then, you know, for, you know, however amount of time that they're there, usually 45 minutes or so, the whole design team will just come in and check out the prints that they have to sell. And it's also an opportunity to get information on what's going on in the industry. I mean, a good print vendor won't exactly tell you that your competitor is like buying all of these kinds of prints, <laughs> but they might say, oh, you know, these kinds of palm prints are really trending for your category of product or something like that. So it's it's actually pretty valuable. Um, the pet peeve, taking a little while to get to, is that um, even as 
our industry has sort of like progressed into the modern era of being able to use um, CAD systems or Adobe products to make some of this original artwork, um, I was finding that we would work with print studios and originally like a lot of this artwork was either a vintage swatch that you might buy or something that was hand-painted by an artist. But of course, as people started to get more acclimated to using CAD systems, you would get artwork that might have been either started or at least finished on a digital platform. And so you might get a Back in the day, you'd get a CD, and now you would just get emailed a digital file for the piece of artwork that you purchased. Um, but I was finding that even when we were finally at the point where we were getting digital artwork along with a physical either paper or fabric swatch of the artwork, um, a lot of the time all that that was saving us was the trouble of having to scan it because you would get a high-resolution PDF or JPEG of this artwork um, and, and that was nice, but it wasn't really the working tool that would have helped us a lot. So we would come home with all of these prints. And if I was at a company that was fortunate enough to have a CAD designer on staff, like someone whose designated job was just to help us edit these prints because they're hardly ever used exactly the way that they are. Usually they need to, the, the most typical edit is that the color would get changed, for instance. So I would give the CAD designer, like I'd be all proud. Hey, they have digital files. Here you go. <laughs> and I would just hear this giant groan because all she would get is a flat PDF or JPEG and she still would have hours of work ahead of her to edit them the way that we needed them. Maybe to see them in various colorways or maybe to pull out a motif or something like that. And I just didn't understand why we were still doing things this way, especially you know within the past, say, you know, eight years. Yeah. I don't, why? Why are we getting artwork that, you know, m at least 50% of the time even s was originated from the very beginning on a CAD platform, and yet it's not that easy to change. So that little irritant um, was something that really was the impetus for me to start. And there was another little uh, facet of that, which is for a short while, while I was a freelancer, I had gotten a lot of work um, doing surface design from a particular client, and I, I tapped into a really old love for me, like the thing that actually made me be an artist in the first place, which was painting. So I was doing all of these original prints for her, and they were hand paintings that would get um, printed onto fine gauge sweaters. I really, really loved doing this work. So when I was freelancing later on, um, I had an opportunity to work myself for a print studio, and I was aghast at one point when um, I was told, oh, it's okay, you don't really have to put that in repeat, just eyeball it. And I just said, that's ridiculous. Oh, you know? my gosh. <laughs> I and I remember telling that, I mean, the person who ran the studio, who's probably trying to save me time, I said, but it's almost worse to eyeball it because then they think it's in repeat and then they get it back to the studio and it's not. Like I would almost rather just like give them a piece of artwork that's obviously not in repeat. Yeah. They know they have the work ahead of them. So I don't know. I just, like, for me, it was just this aha moment because I was like, gosh, is this still okay? That's crazy. You know. <laughs> Anyhow, so that was, that's a really long-winded reason why I started Polychrome because I, I just really felt like, this is crazy. We shouldn't be doing work in this way anymore. I think that the prints that clients buy shouldn't just be beautiful. It's almost like them being beautiful and inspiring and 
maybe the beginning of a whole product assortment, like that should be a given. They should be getting a working tool, you know? That's that's what I wanted to start. So that was the whole passion behind starting Polychrome. That's amazing. So when did you like really kickstart it? We um, we launched in October of 2016. Okay. You know, because it's really, really smart to launch a business in the middle of like one of the most contentious presidential elections in the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hey, sometimes you just do what you got to do and the timing goes out the window. Yeah, well, I guess that was definitely one of those scenarios. The idea had just been like kicking around in my mind for a while, ever since I had worked, you know, for that brief stint for the Prince Studio. Um, And I probably would have started sooner, except I'll be honest with you, I was just not like brave enough to start it by myself. I kept thinking, I really want a partner. I really want a partner. And partly to help with the lift and partly to just make like to sanity check. Um, and to be honest, like I, I think if I found a partner, so many things about doing this would have been easier. Um, I'm still kind of open to the idea of someday maybe bringing a partner on board. But after a while of just not finding the right person that was a right fit, I was just like, all right, forget it. I need to just, I need to just do this and, you know, work out the kinks as I go. And it, it just kind of so happened that that's how the timing ended up what it was. And it was, I, I felt like it was really, really hard to make any noise anywhere on the internet about your launch or anything that you're doing when all that brouhaha was going on. So yeah, yeah it was, it was interesting. <laughs> um, okay. So, so you wanted the part, I, I love that you mentioned the whole, like, you were just maybe too scared of like doing this by yourself, because I think that a lot of times, no matter what it is that you're trying to do, you can find something in your journey that you're like, well, this isn't quite figured out yet, or this isn't quite perfect, or this isn't quite as I pictured it, so I'm just going to keep waiting. And you can keep waiting and waiting forever, right? Whether it's launching your brand, whether it's applying to your dream job, whether it's kickstarting freelance, um, whether it's, you know, launching a business like you've done with Polychrome. So what, like you said at some point you were just like, okay, I just have to do it. But like, was there an actual trigger or someone in the background, maybe a friend or a, a partner, husband, I don't know, that like kind of just kicked you in the butt and was like, you got to just get this out the door or you just kind of figure that out on your own? (laughs) Um, I'd have to say it was probably, it was probably a couple of different factors. I, I, I definitely have never been accused of not overanalyzing things. (laughs) 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 Um, I think I, like I said before, I probably could have launched sooner. I definitely like to think things out. I, I'm used to troubleshooting. I think a lot of designers are. I think that they, you know, they consider all these potential outcomes and blah, blah, blah. So um, don't get me wrong. I was definitely cautious about it. But I think probably the couple of aha moments really happened um, in, a, in a couple of important conversations. One of them was with a person that I had thought, oh, um, maybe this person would be a great partner. And like the more we talked together, the more I realized that I was gravitating towards someone who, um, you know, I have immense respect for, and I think they're really talented, but we, our strengths were actually 
very similar. And that's mm. not, a, for me, anyway, this would not have been a great choice for a partner. It, yeah. Really, if, I'm, if I, even in the future, if I am going to take on a partner, it makes so much more sense to get somebody who has strengths where I feel like I might be a little bit lacking, you yeah. know, or loves to do the stuff that I don't really love doing. So taking on a, a second me, in other words, <laughs> doesn't make a lot of sense. no. Yeah, and so hashing stuff out with this person, realizing, wait, this probably isn't going to work. Like, she just turned to me and very generously said, I don't know what you're waiting for. You have everything you need to start. Like, Ah. you just need to start because you don't need me. You don't need anybody. Like, you have got it all going on. And I just thought, wow, it was so – first of all, it was very kind because I was basically – you know, we're coming to the conclusion it wasn't going to (laughs) work. And and it was just – a real, really motivating thing for me to hear because, you know, sometimes you really need somebody to give you that little bit of ego boost. You because do. Because a little, like, voice in me, the one that, you know, keeps you from doing, like, the more brave things in your life. Of course, that voice was, like, in hyperdrive telling me, like, oh, my God, think of all that could go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> And then the other conversation that I had that was really impactful and um, helping me to start um, was I, I've been actually working and I still work with the SCORE organization. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. No, I haven't. Um, so SCORE used to be an acronym that stood for um, the Senior Corps of Retired Executives. Okay. Uh, now they're kind of uh, working a little hard in the past several years to sort of rebrand and get away from the concept that it's all retirees. But basically, it's an organization of like literally captains of industry, like people who've just had awesome careers. And and then um, some of them retire, either they retire early or, you know, they retire at typical retirement age. Some of them no longer are even retired at all. They just, they get really excited about helping people build stuff. So some of the retirees, I think they just get home and then they just get really antsy and they want to build something again. Um, And they help small businesses kind of just from everything you could think of, the plan, um, they'll help you get finances in order, um, you know, as far as a plan and maybe even put you in touch with ideas for funding and things like that. So I'd been working with a couple of advisors for a little while. And the one that I'd been working with after just hashing out all my ideas for not just polychrome, but like other ideas before polychrome even had the name polychrome, um, and just like one afternoon, we were kind of sitting across from each other and he was like, all right, when you're starting, like you seem ready, you got to do this. <laughs> so it, it was like another kick in the pants I kind of needed from someone I trusted who was saying like, you've been ready. It's just time to do it, you know? Yeah. yeah. I love that. And I think, you know, I bring up the point and I kind of wanted to dig into that because I think it's easier for any of us. Um, I've been guilty myself of like waiting and waiting and waiting and then you finally do the thing and it might be a little messy at the beginning and you might make some mistakes and you flail, but like you figure it out. And every time I look back on those situations, I don't know if this is how you felt. I was like, I still waited too long to launch. Like I still should have done it sooner. I wish that's always my regret is like, I mean, I'm glad I did it. Um, and I didn't wait another three, six, nine, twelve months, but like, gosh, I should have done it six months earlier. I should have done it a year earlier. Like actually I probably was enough ready. I don't know how you felt. All of that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, I, I probably could have started it a full year, maybe more earlier. Honestly, I'd been talking about like 
what I thought were discrepancies uh, or disservices that, you know, the industry, you know, that the, I'm not saying that there's no other print vendors out there that are doing things that are similar to what I'm doing now, but it just was, it was so rare. And I think it still kind of is for people to want to make these things a working tool, not just, not just what they've always been. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I do wish I had started it sooner. Honestly, I do. <laughs> okay. So driving point home, dear listener, if you're out there feeling nervous about whatever thing it is that you're thinking about trying to do, just kickstart it and you'll mess up and it's okay, but you'll learn and, and you'll get things moving. Um, okay. So we could nerd out on this all day long, but <laughs> what, like, just quickly talk us through the logistics of starting this because you're a print studio. So obviously you have prints from designers around the world. I mean, how did you even get started with, I'm doing air quotes, like inventory and, and present that in a platform where people can buy, or I don't know, what did that look like? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, um, I think whenever you start like whether it's a business like this or you start freelancing or even you sort of make a big shift in your career I think when you're involved in it it's really hard to see the forest for the trees like you just you feel like every day is like you know maybe some days are great and some days are not great but every day is its own challenge um and you know, you're sort of slogging through, slogging through, right? Um, but sometimes I think you need to mindfully take stock and like what happened the year before and how far you've come. Because if you never look up to see that, it's really easy to feel like you're not making tons of progress. Yeah. And when I took stock after my first year, I will be honest, we weren't exactly where I wanted to be, like nothing where I was dreaming to be. But I realized like how much stuff I'd done that like, just was wrapped up in the growth of the business, but my own personal growth, the stuff that I learned and all of that nonsense that um, I was like, okay, now I see why I had to go through all that stuff, you know, <laughs> building the infrastructure of the business itself. Like so much of that happened, of course, prior to the launch, but there was still so much more to be done. Like I had it even realize that, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that's a bit of the stumbling around that you referred to earlier. I mean, when I launched, I realized that there were still some things to be done. And I know the kind of person I am. If I wait till I think like, yay, it's all perfect. I've put on the like final flourish and now I'm done. <laughs> I wouldn't be talking to you right now because yeah. I would still be planning. I know. So, yeah, that's just that's just the way I am because something can always be better and always be fixed, right? So I realized when I launched um, the fall of 2016 that like there were still things I needed to fix. I knew that the website, like if I looking at the old iteration of my website now, I'm practically choking. I'm laughing so badly at it, you know. <laughs> And I hadn't even figured out like an efficient way to deliver the product to the client. Like basically it was going to involve me just always being on and ready to answer a <laughs> yeah. client and like then send it to them. You know, now it's so laughable and I'm kind of going on a tangent, but basically like you have to know in your heart that you're going to learn a lot of stuff as you go. Don't even let that hold you back from launching because even after you like launch your endeavor or whatever, there's so many things you're going to learn. And then there are things that I thought were so important. 
I can't think of a specific instance, I'm afraid, but things that I thought were like so important. And then after getting the first couple of customers and clients, like and getting their feedback, because that's one important thing, like constantly and fearlessly ask for feedback. Like yes. ask the good and the bad, like, what did you love? What did you hate? How can I fix? You know what I mean? Um, I started to realize like some of the stuff I thought was super important, like really wasn't, it wasn't anything they cared about. Um, again, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm like kind of blanking on a specific thing, but okay. I think that that's important because if I'd wasted time in the beginning trying to do yes. all that, that was super important. It may have been, possibly would have been wasted time because now I realize some of those little details weren't super important to the client. Um, but I think I, I got away a little from your question. You had actually asked, like, how did I engage the artists? Isn't that what you were asking? I mean, you no, I had asked. It was kind of two-part. One was like, yeah, like, technically, how did you kickstart it? Which I think you answered. And I actually love the point you made about, um, you know, like, some of the stuff you said, like, it wasn't scalable at first. Like, you were manually fulfilling the orders. But that's okay because sometimes you might worry that, like, you have to spend all this time, like, building some system to do something. And then it's like, actually that feature is not really important because I didn't engage with my customer yet. And so like, don't worry about scalability until you have the problem, right? Yeah. Until you need to worry about it. Um, So I love that you point that out and then, you know, using the feedback from your customer. So that was like half the question, but the other half was, um, you know, how did you engage the artists and get, I I used air quotes and said inventory, right? Cause you're, you stock prints to sell. That's right. One of the, one of the, one of the things that Polychrome does fulfill in some ways is my own personal paranoia and like, I, I don't know, like allergy almost to inventory. <laughs> I knew really early on in my career <laughs> that I didn't want to have um, like a, a brand with my own name on it. I mean, never say never, but I hadn't wanted that when I graduated. I don't really want that now. Um I didn't want to have like a line of clothing hanging up with my name on it that I'd have to like worry about the inventory and like, you know, how much of it yeah. I needed. And the all true, that stuff like, like physical inventory is hard. Physical inventory is, it, it can just completely sink a, a great company, like a yeah. great idea, you yeah. know? Um, and so, it, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like just like laying my soul bare in front of everybody about like the stuff I'm afraid of. Um, so in some ways like this business is a great fit for that fear of mine because there is not a ton of inventory. We have inventory, but it's all virtual. I have like multiple systems for backing stuff up. So I'm not afraid I'm going to like lose it in a house fire or something like that. (laughs) Um, we do print out our artwork because I do go like to like physical client appointments. And in that case, they really do love to just the act. Like it's kind of an intimate action. I can't think of a better word, but like being able to flip, like physically flip through pieces and they can pieces out. They still really like that. Yeah. But the premise, really, for Polychrome, um, one of the main ways that we're different is really the best way to engage us is to go online. You can see our entire inventory online. And, like, for me, this was one of the visions of why aren't we doing this? And, um, again, another reason why I wish I had launched a year or two earlier because, you know, going back six years or so, there really weren't that many companies that had their print inventory online you know you might be able to they had websites and you could see what they were doing but you can order something and have it like delivered to your inbox in five seconds you know right 
and that's the premise of of what I'm doing. And one of one of the reasons that that was appealing to me is because it again in my past life working in design offices, we would come home with all these like fabric swatches or large scale paper swatches, and we would use most of them. Sometimes these things go unused. You could get it back home and other folks don't like it or, you know, whatever. The print doesn't get adopted. And so then it just gets put, if, if your design office is organized and not all of them are, <laughs> it gets put into a print uh, library that, you know, some intern needs to <laughs> help you with organizing yes, and keeping track exactly. of and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I've worked at places where that was a big room. And yeah. that's all that was in that room. And I remember going in and thinking, like, unless this is kept super organized, and sometimes they were, and most of the time they weren't, like, coming through here and looking through these racks is not, it just doesn't feel that inspiring to a lot of designers, <laughs> you know? Um, and then trying to reimagine what this print that someone bought five years ago, like, how can you make it look updated? Blah, blah, blah. But a lot of that stuff is just sitting there, and I would think, gosh, this is so wasteful. Like it's a waste of paper. It's a waste of fabric. It's a waste of ink. It's a waste of space. Like, you know, I know sustainability is such a hot button word right now, but even way back then, like, you know, 12 years ago or so, I'm thinking like, this doesn't feel very sustainable, you know? Um, And now that all of the prints can be kept in a digital format. And frankly, that's what you actually need to be sending to your mill or to your, you know, vendor that's going to be helping you produce this print. Like hardly anybody's sending off paper anymore, right. you know, or sending right. off fabric. Really, you need that digital file. It's almost like this vestige of the way we used to do things is pretty superfluous. But fashion is interesting in this way. Like this is an industry that purports itself to be on the cutting edge of things, like wants to be at the forefront of all the latest trends. But at the same time, they are really slow to change. Very. <laughs> and they're, they're, I'm not going to name any names, but there is some stuff out there that is so dated. Like there are pay for services I have signed up for. And I am like, this is the technology that you're giving me in 2020. Like it's rough. Like on a technology scale, I've always felt that about our industry. We're so cutting edge and like design and trend and all this other stuff, but then we are so behind and slow to innovate on all these other things. Yeah, and it usually happens like within a company. It usually happens. Um, I really I can't speak that well to other departments as I can to the design department. But it happens in the, um, um, you know, design stage where they're just getting, they kind of get stuck in the way they used to do things and not thinking forward. I mean, the, yeah. the couple of times that I have, you know, really talked to people about, but we don't even really need the paper swatch. We don't really need the fabric swatch. And they're like, no, but they like it. And I'm thinking... It's, I mean, it's important to listen to your customers. Sure. And I can understand if they like it, sure, no problem. But at the same time, like, what do we really need it for? We're looking at the thing on the screen. It's going to get edited on a screen. It's going to get sent to the client on a screen. So it, it, it'll it take a while before people are truly digital. I know. Um, but that was also another, like, kind of point for me to start polychrome, I think, was me thinking, at the end of the day, we need a digital file. And yeah. that needs to get sent overseas or wherever it is that you're having this printed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, the first thing that comes to a lot of people's minds when you talk about digital is 
protecting the artwork. So like mm-hmm. people stealing or like ripping or knocking you off. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about how your company thinks about that? What you do or don't do to try to protect that? Maybe if you've had any experiences with that, shed some light on that for us. This is hard, isn't it? Like for anybody yeah. doing <laughs> any creative work anywhere at all. <laughs> um, I mean, I remember going back early in my career and people even being afraid to show their portfolios even when they were out job hunting. Oh, they're still afraid and they're still afraid to put them online and like, yeah, yeah, like this is a real problem in our industry. It is. And and the fear isn't totally unwarranted. Correct. Um, they're not paranoid. There's lots of like, you know, bad actors, unfortunately. Um, but the fact is, like, if you hide your light under a bushel, no one will see it. Yeah. And, you know, you can't sell services when nobody can see what you can offer. Um, so the way that we deal with it is... Um, that we watermark everything that we have up on our website and everything that we post onto social media. Um, and the watermark is like a, it's not just in a little corner. It's like a right. um, mesh that goes over the entire print. Right. Um, and we try to make it as unobtrusive as possible so that, you know, you can, uh, you can enjoy what the print looks like. And it's not distracting from that. But at the same time, if someone were to, rip off our print with say a screenshot or something like that. Like right now, actually the website too has like a copyright, um, like, I don't know, it's like a software add on that came with our, came with our web publisher. So if you write mouse click, say on a piece of artwork and try to save that image, it won't allow you to like, you'll come up with a copyright. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. No, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, that's that's not very protective. I mean, anybody can take a screenshot if they want to. But the fact is, like, what are you getting from the screenshot? It's relatively low-res image. And it now has, like, this shadow watermark all over the whole thing. If someone is going to try to rip that off from me or from us, from Polychrome, they can, obviously. But they're going to have to spend a fair amount of time, like, rebuilding this. And all I can think is, well don't they value their time at all? I mean, our prints are market price. It's $600 for every single print on our site. And for that, you own the copyright to this print. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're going to steal the print in that shoddy way and end up with artwork that you need to fix for hours, you know, it would actually take a really long time to get rid of the watermark and then like try to sharpen it up and all that stuff. Like, I don't know. It just seems like it wouldn't be worth it. You could just pay the $600 fee and you are, you own this legally and it, you know, right. <laughs> it's not so exorbitant that it wouldn't be worth paying that money and, and just owning it. As soon as you make the purchase online, um, our, the file gets immediately delivered to you. So, I mean, you could be like shopping on our site, on your iPhone, on your way into work on the subway, if you commute in the subway, and the file's already in your inbox, you know, and you get into the office and it's already there. Yeah. And everything is like layered in Photoshop or Illustrator or whatever the native file is. It's totally workable and repeat. Like you said, make you make sure that this is a working tool. Am I correct in assuming those features? Yeah. And I have to say, like, we're always tweaking it for the better you know <laughs> um all of the artwork like since since we've started so every piece of artwork in the collection is entry repeat is layered um the motifs are 
and, and there's no like one right way to do this either. Right. You know, like the it really depends on the nature of the artwork itself. In some cases, it makes a lot of sense to have everything layered in a folder for that particular kind of motif. You know, like motif one. In other ways, it makes a lot of sense to have it layered by color. So um, there's not one way to skin the cat, but. I, my artists are now sort of like trained to understand that no matter what we put out there, we need to look at it from the point of view of the the client. Like when they open this up, is it going to be as easy to use as possible? Are the yeah. layers like labeled so that they're super easy to understand and to find stuff? Um, the other thing that um, they get when they buy one of our files is at the moment I still look at every single piece of artwork that comes in before it gets uploaded to the site like I proof every single thing and if it doesn't meet our standards you know I'll communicate back to the artists and ask them to make the adjustments and one of the ways that I sort of kick the tires on most of the prints is to actually create another colorway I want to make sure I can really make another colorway as quickly as possible because that's probably the number one edit that a client would want to make yep um and so I can't do anything with these additional colorways. So most of our prints come with the additional colorways included in that price. Okay, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Which is actually, that's still unusual. No, it's super unusual. Industry. I mean, I've not bought a ton of prints, but I've bought enough to have had those same pet peeves that you talked about earlier. Um, yeah. And it's a pain. Like you've got it, you buy it and you're basically just buying a flat piece of artwork that then you have to like rework and manipulate and get into repeat and pull apart. And it's a challenge. Yeah, Um, it can be frustrating. Honestly, I can tell you that we've shaved like what could be hours off of that process. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. yeah, If you were to compare, say we had a watercolor floral in the connect in the collection, if that were a flattened high res JPEG or PDF and you had to open it up and in Photoshop, like change, change things, it could take even, you know, a really skilled CAD artist, the better part of their work day to get like a couple of different color variations and in order to show the design director, for example. But when you open up one of our files, um, you know, someone who is Photoshop or illustrator savvy, obviously not someone who has no experience, but they should be able to change our files within an hour tops to get like multiple colorways to pull out a motif, maybe even to create like a supporting secondary print, like a ditzy or something. Right, right, right. We'll get back to this episode in 20 seconds, but real quick, did you know that the SFD podcast is sponsored by you? We don't interrupt your listening experience with ads and instead rely on your support. There are three ways you can do that. One, tell a friend about the podcast. Two, sign up for the email list at soheidi.com slash email. That's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I dot com slash email. Three, write a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for supporting the SFD podcast. Now back to the episode. So can you talk a little bit about how you work with your team of print designers? Because I know that different studios work very differently. Um, You know, sometimes it's like, okay, I just designed a bunch of prints for this studio and then if one happens to sell, I get paid or maybe the studio just outright buys the prints. Like, can you talk a little bit about your arrangement with your team of artists and what that looks like? Because it does sound like it's fairly, um, 
I don't know if intimate is the right word, but I mean, you give them feedback and then how much do you like direct what they actually design as far as trends and what does that whole arrangement look like? Sure. Yeah. This is a way that our studio, I think, is a little bit different also. Um, All of the prints that get designed are designed into the trends that we projected for that season. So really early on, and we start all of our trend research, frankly, on Pinterest because it's just the easiest, best platform to compile info and share that with the team. Um, So they're all secret boards that are only shared within the team. If you were to go to our Pinterest profile, if anybody wants to go look at it, the, um, the handle is for poly, F-O-R-P-O-L-Y. Um, there's tons of trend information on there that is publicly viewable, but trends that we're working on that haven't come to retail market yet, those are hidden. So anybody on the public space wouldn't be able to see them, but the team can all see them and they can contribute to them. So we have team members that are in Korea. We have team members that are in Spain. We have team members throughout the United States. And when they find out what our um, trends are for the season, everybody is like, putting stuff into these Pinterest boards, um, whether they're photographs that they've taken or their articles that they've read or they're just images like, you know, from Vogue Runway or something. So we're getting lots of this feedback from the team. Then we'll create um, an actual trend report. And those trend reports that get created are also available a la carte to be purchased from our website. So right now we haven't started a subscription for our trend services. Anybody can just go um, onto the Polychrome website and look under the trend tab and they can purchase any one of those trend reports um, that is interesting to them. Okay. The team designs into that trend report and the trend report comes complete with um, Pantone codes. So the team has like a the same color palette to be working on. They have ideas of motifs that we're going to be working on. They've already been... Um, kind of involved in all of the research so they have a really good feeling for what that looks like um and they're able to like team members are not obligated to contribute to those pinterest things it's just so that they get an early insight into what we're thinking it's most people get kind of excited about them to be honest they're kind of like oh we're gonna do this you know particular trend for autumn yeah i have a couple of great tears for that let me pop those in there so that we all remember where they are Um, the team members are really varied. Like we have people that are, um, really veteran fashion designers, illustrators, print designers that, you know, kind of intimately understand how to create a good saleable print for fashion. But then we also have a small segment of team members that, um, aren't actually from that space. And I think it's one of our strengths. So we have people that are photographers or lithographers, painters, like other kinds of fine artists who contribute to the collection um, in a different way. Um, There are people that have approached us saying like, I've always been really interested in, you know, um, possibly selling my work in this way, like, you know, or seeing, even just seeing my work, you know, on a commercial piece instead of hanging in a gallery wall would be kind of interesting. So they'll um, send me pieces of artwork for consideration um, and the internal team will go ahead and make that artwork into a repeat print or maybe even a layered placement print or something like that um, with their permission. Um, So those team members don't actually, they don't have to go ahead and create the work themselves 
totally digitized that would, you know, be purchased by the end client will have work to do. So that doesn't comprise as much of our team because that would be a really heavy lift for us. Yeah. Um, but I think it ends like it ends up giving our collection a really interesting um, perspective on what's trending in the larger world. Um, the larger world that's creative, I guess I should say. So whenever the the team members um, submit this stuff, even though we might have someone who's like a lithographer based in like Albuquerque, and then we have someone who's like a like veteran textile designer out of Korea or something like that, and they're both submitting things, even though they might have like vastly different um, styles and hand feels to their work, they're still designing into a similar um, trend aesthetic and into the same color palette. So that kind of lends a sense of continuity in the collection. Um, I don't know if that kind of answers your question. The other part of the question was like, how do team members get compensated and how do we even work together? So the compensation is on commission only. So when a piece sells, um, they get their cut of the um of the proceeds and then polychrome gets the cut of the proceeds okay gotcha yeah so because a lot of designers are and artists are working on the team um sort of like as a moonlighting thing or um something that they're doing on the side something that they might be doing to hone different skills or to figure out if they really love textile design you know um we have people that are bringing a whole varied skill set and like their perspective from their careers to the table. And I think it makes the collection really rich for that. Yeah. And I know that that's how a lot of um, print studios work and I, I can fully understand why. Um, So. Oh, the other thing to mention about that, which is pretty important. It's a, it's a question that comes up a lot for artists that um, are engaging with us is that, until their print sells, they hold a copyright to it. So Polychrome ah. doesn't ever hold a copyright to their work. It's their work. We're just representing it. Okay. Um, so are they but, free to like sell it elsewhere at the same time and then wherever it sells first, they pull it? They they are free to do it, but not at the same time because we okay. could run into a really sticky legal situation if they're showing it in one venue for sale and like it's still up on our website. And it gets bought at the same time, right. Yeah, it would be an odd coincidence, but it would be kind of a disaster if it happened. (laughs) So um, like, but if at any point, um, you know, an artist says, hey, like they're allowed, for instance, um, while their work is with Polychrome, in fact, they're encouraged (laughs) to promote their work on their Instagram accounts or something like that. I just asked them, hey, you know, if you really want to do an effective job promoting, like, tell them to come to Polychrome to buy it. And not just like, hey, look at this beautiful thing I just made. Like you want, if you want it sold, like make sure that they know where to come and get it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they might have someone approach them and send them an instant message saying, hey, you know, I saw that piece and I'd really love to, I'd really love to buy it. So then we just like tell the artist, if something like that were to ever come up and you wanted to sell it separately, just let us know. Give, we'll have to, give us enough time to pull it from the site. Um, But it's your piece, you know, you just can't sell it actively at the same time that we're selling it for the the legal issue that could come up. Okay. Gotcha. Um, So talk a little bit about something that you and I chatted with again, before we hit record. Um, 
Talk a little bit about some of the logistics of working with a remote team. I mean, some of these are, you know, your your team of designers and artists who you've mentioned are around the world and you guys collaborate on secret Pinterest boards, which is also one of my favorite sort of hacks too. I say hack. I don't even know if it's really a hack, but like my husband has always said to me, he's like, I think it's so cool that like the way you guys use Pinterest. I'm like, it's so obvious. He goes, I don't think a lot of people see it as that obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, it's the exact way that you do it, right? You create these secret boards and everybody can contribute and it just makes it really easy. Um, so can you talk a little bit of logistically about some of the other tools and ways you work remotely with these artists and these designers as well as your in-house team because I know in fashion a lot of times there's a lot of companies I think are still slow to adopt this and I think we'll get there but even still from the freelancer's perspective or from the artist's perspective there can be this barrier up as to like oh it's just so it's too hard to work remote you have to be in the same office so talk us through like some of the logistics that you guys have figured out to ease that process Sure. Um, and just like with designing their prints, I'm sure there's like lots of different ways to pull this off effectively. Um, but the tools that I tend to lean on pretty heavily are um, we use Dropbox for pretty much any any dropping off of files for me to review. Um, I'll even use Dropbox to comment on the artist files. Like I'll comment directly into Dropbox when talking to the artists about their work, especially if it's just kind of like a quick comment. Um, so if anyone out there isn't using Dropbox, I think it's a great resource. Yes. Um, also, the artists can create their own Dropbox account for free, so you're not like expecting them to take on any sort of a subscription that they may or may not have to pay for. Um, So that's really helpful. They do get like a limited amount of space, but nothing really stays in our shared folder indefinitely. So, you know, we just make sure that we empty out the folder after they've dropped off artwork for us and it hasn't been a problem yet. Um, We also use Asana. I don't know if you've heard of Asana. Yeah, I have heard of it. Yeah, I know lots of people seem really enamored of like uh, whatever task managing platform they've used. And I can <laughs> tell you that I like researched which one I wanted to latch onto um, really, really in depth because I knew once I'd invested the time of like starting to use it, I wouldn't really want to go backwards and undo all of that or have to like relearn another thing. So after literally like a couple of weeks of trying to figure out which task manager I thought would be best, I used Asana. And I think it's fantastic. Um, I don't. I use it not only for working with the internal Polychrome team, but I also um, use it when I wear my other hat, which we haven't even talked about yet, but I also head up a, um, a group called the Apparel Designers Network. We have a couple chapters around the country. And um, so whenever I'm pulling somebody into a project, for that networking group. Um, we do the projects on Asana for that as well. So I think it's great. Um, then the other thing that we use quite a bit is um, we still use Google Docs for various things. Mm-hmm. So whenever, um, I'll give you an example. Like the documents that I use for templates, 
um, to welcome a new artist, to give them instructions, like the onboarding process. The process itself is in Asana so that myself or anybody helping me um, won't forget a step. But all those things will have links to Google Docs. And in Asana, you can actually add links directly into your Asana tasks, which is what they call each and every like piece that you're putting into your workflow. Um, you can actually have links directly into Google Docs and into Dropbox through Asana. So I really loved that those things worked holistically. So those are like those are a few of the things that we use for logistics. Um, something else that we do that I I'm really sort of happy about and proud of is that um, as soon as an artist comes on board with us, they get invited into um, a secret Facebook group. So I'm not sure how much you might know about Facebook groups, but there's like three different kinds of groups you can have now. One is a public group. Literally anybody can join it and see it and see all the posts. And then um, the one in the middle is like closed group. Um, we have a closed work group, for example, for the Apparel Designers Network that I just mentioned. So you could find it online and you can see some of the posts that are there, but you have to request membership into the group. Um, and then the last one is a secret Facebook group. So you can't find it online. Um, you won't be able to see anything about it. Um, you have to be invited into it in the first place. So you, you can't request admittance, basically. So I use the secret group for Polychrome kind of as a virtual um, studio of sorts. Since we're not all gathered in a physical studio, this is a place where designers can engage with each other. And, you know, I, I would obviously be able to see the conversation because I'm the moderator of the group, but I don't need to be part of the conversation. We've had designers in the past put up like an A and B of a piece that they're working on and say, hey guys, like I'm really torn. Do you like this scale or that scale better? Or do you like this color or that color better? And then they can get feedback from their peers, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that is super cool. Yeah. And um, the other, I mean, we use that for a multitude of ways. I'll use it to welcome a new designer. Like as soon as they accept the invite and I can see that they're in the group, I'll let the team know, hey, we have a new artist and here's where she's from. Tell us a little bit about you or whatever. Um, but the other way that we use it is to sort of um, put up news like, hey, we just got this like great client or, hey, we just got this awesome validation of a trend that we, you know, we worked on two years ago. Isn't that cool? So there's some like rah, rah, rah stuff going on in there like you would in any like physical studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the other thing that I use it for, and this actually, um, this actually taps into um, one of the other services that Polychrome provides to its clients is um, we provide custom services as well. So like we'll do custom trend work, we'll do custom print work, um, we'll even do custom illustrations, anything that a client might need in, in those regards. Um, so if I have a client come to me and say, hey, you know, I, I'm looking for a custom print and this is the timeline that I need it in and like here are the materials that they bring to the table, whether it's a color palette or some inspirational materials or whatever, um, I'll actually reach out to the the artists on that Facebook page, I find that it's a nicer way to engage them rather than sending out a group email. I'll make a post on the Facebook um, secret group and I'll say, hey guys, we have an opportunity to do custom work and this is what it looks like. Here's some of the inspo materials, like who's in? And basically it's kind of like the early bird gets the worm. Whoever, um, 
it's not always whoever answers me back first, um, but whoever is like raising their hands first to say, hey, I'm interested, I'm usually able to like divvy up the job so that everybody gets a little a little bit because oftentimes prints will come um, in waves. It'll be more than one. They'll want like a collection of three prints or right. something like that. Right. Um, and also it'll give me a chance to maybe even ping artists that I know have been kind of hungry for work or maybe um, it's their particular style. Like if somebody is really awesome at doing like shibori type, um, like mock shibori prints, I might tag them on the post and be like, hey, you know, this seems up your alley. Do you have time? You know, things like that. Gotcha. So that's one of the, I rely pretty heavily on that. That's one of the things that um, that we do that I think also makes our group feel a little bit more in touch with each other. Yeah, it's like you've almost built a little community for the team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really cool. I love how you've done that. Yeah, I think... Um, I think that the team likes it too. And now in posts, um, actually, I don't know how long they've they've been offering this feature. Maybe it's been for a little while, but I only noticed it within this year. You can like tag posts. So you can have custom tags for your group. Um, and so someone could search by tag for um, op- like opportunity, I think is, is one of the tags that we have in our group. So if they're looking for custom work, like, hey, is there anything new that's been popping up that, if they just hit on that tag, then they'd see all the recent posts with opportunities to do custom work. Right. Yeah. I am, I've not used, but I'm familiar with that feature that Facebook put out sort of to create ways for these groups, whether they're private or public, doesn't matter, but like to keep the content a little bit more organized and easy to find. Yeah. I think it's a, I think it's a good feature because it is really easy for stuff to get buried in groups. Um, our, the apparel designers network um, closed group that I mentioned earlier, that has hundreds and hundreds of members. So, um, and those people are allowed to put posts up as long as they aren't like a lot of self-promoting type stuff. Um, and I mean, it's pretty rare that I have to take a post down because someone's like relentlessly (laughs) self-promoting. Usually it's asking for advice or job opportunities or something like that. Um, but it's been really nice because as the moderator, you can go ahead and, and tag these things too so that you can help keep keep what's going on organized. Gotcha. So mm-hmm. take a quick minute and tell us a little bit more about what you do with that Apparel Designers Network. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, anybody who may be interested in it, um, it's got a really long web address. It's apparelldesignersnetwork.com. Um and this sort of started, this started at the end of 2016. Um, I'm going to be completely honest about why I started it. Um, I like some facets of networking and I totally cringe at other facets <laughs> of networking. Like I, I've always been really good at um, keeping in touch with people and like I think establishing personal relationships, um, like professional, but also personal relationships, like sending people an email on their birthday and stuff like that. That part's easy. Um, and having conversations, obviously it comes easy to me. Like this conversation <laughs> is easy. But the part about networking that I absolutely hate is like feeling like you've got to work the room. You know, like if you go yeah. to a networking event and oftentimes we will go with a goal in mind, which I think is always, is actually a really good thing. Like you might go to an event knowing that a certain, um, like, you know, 
client is there that you would really love to work with. And, you know, your goal might be, hey, I want to engage with this client when I'm at this event. Well, good for you. Like, you should have a goal like that. But it's, for me, it's personally, it can be really hard to not feel like I'm being smarmy. Um, again, I'm just saying this is like a personal shortcoming. I'm not yeah, saying no. anyone should feel this No, way. I know. It's totally a thing, though. Yeah, it's really a thing, and it sure is a thing for me. So um, <laughs> at the end of 2016, um, realizing that this was kind of one of my weaknesses and that I had a new business to tout, I was like, okay, I, I need to get out to more networking events. I need to make more connections, not only like direct connections for potential clients, but also just connections with other entrepreneurs in the area to get like solutions for stuff you know sometimes if you go to events totally outside of your industry you get awesome ideas and you make really good connections and they open doors you just really wouldn't have imagined but um, sometimes making yourself go out to those things at the end of a long day is really really hard Um, and another thing about fashion designers in general is like I find that we are like the recluse spiders of the creative industry (laughs) Um, It's a really, really hard group of people to get to come out um, and do something. Like, they have their small group of, like, trusted friends that they want to go out with and, like, maybe maybe go out with on the weekend and hang out. But it's really hard to get them to come out because they're working so hard and it can be such a stressful job. Like, at the end of the day, most of the time, I think they're just like, I just want to go home because I'm going to have to start this all over again tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) And even if you have the best of intentions to go out and network... Like by the time the end of the day rolls around, like you've already talked yourself out of that healthy practice. So I started the ADN. That's a um, shorter name for it. Okay. Make myself go out and network because you can't really weasel out of the event you organize, can you? <laughs> <laughs> and also because I like there really is um, a void for that in um, like we're based in the Boston area, and there are actually plenty of fashion um companies in the Boston area we're like known more for active wear yeah um but there's kind of a void for that there are like networking groups and things like that for independent designers or like young designers coming out of school it feels like there is support for that sort of thing but there isn't a lot of support for designers that are already working at established brands to come out, share ideas, support each other, like maybe tell some war stories sometimes, things like that. And that's really who my target customer is, are people that are working at established, like designers working at established brands. Those are the people that are going to be buying polychromes, products, and services quite honestly, like the smaller independent designers, they really wouldn't have the budget for what we provide. So starting the networking group um, was, you know, they just kind of had a multitude of good purposes for me. One is forcing me to get out and network, flexing that muscle, and also trying to reach my target audience in a way that didn't feel salesy to me because, quite frankly, like we're just, we're just offering them value. You know, I'm not coming on with some like hard sales call immediately. I'm saying, Hey, you know, I, I run the ADN and in my other life, I also do this thing. And the ADN is this networking group. And we're actually going to this awesome, you know, lecture in two weeks. Would you want to come? Like the lecture is all about sustainability and new fibers. Like, does that sound like fun? We're going as a group, you know? 
So that's what the ADN is all about. It's really just about getting people to come out and network in person. But also um, we provide like a couple of different online platforms for people to be able to network virtually because not everybody is able to come out to events either because of proximity or because of personal lives or whatever the reasons may be. So it's interesting because we're seeing like a lot of robust engagement both ways, both um, at the in-person events and at um, at the level of the Facebook group and the LinkedIn group and stuff like that. Very cool. Okay, we'll definitely link to all of that in the show notes for people to check out. Um, I have one last question that I want to squeeze in that um, didn't come up super organically, but I it's something that's on the top of my head, and I know I've heard other uh, textile or surface pattern designers bring this up. Um, the one I know of is Pattern Bank. Mm-hmm. I think there's others out there of that caliber where the prints are like 50 bucks um, or quite inexpensive. Um, how do, and they've got thousands, you know, they've, they've built these massive online marketplaces. And again, I don't, maybe in my head, there's more than just Pattern Bank. Um, maybe there actually are more. Maybe there's only a couple. I don't know how many there actually are out there, but like, how do you compete with that? Because I've heard even independent textile or service pattern designers who are like kind of trying to do the whole freelance route and shop their designs directly to brands mm-hmm. say, how do I compete with a $50 print? And I know, cause I bought, I won't lie. I've bought from Pattern Bank before. You often just get like a flat file. It's not in repeat. Um, depending on the complexity of the file, it's sometimes really hard, sometimes not so hard to get it into repeat. But like, bottom line, this is something that I just heard a lot of people ask. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on it. And, you know, obviously, I know you have some differentiating factors and and services and benefits that you offer that like put you into a different caliber. But it's just a concern I hear people saying a lot. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a really good question. I mean, one of the reasons I sort of tackle early on, like, what are the things we do differently um, at Polychrome? And, like, right off the bat, it's um, the ease of buying the stuff online. I think we have great customer service. It's really personable. Um, the easy-to-work-with files that are, like, not just beautiful but working tools to save time. Like, our whole mantra is that from, like, the shopping experience, like being able to find what they want with the filters on our site, being able to purchase it and have it downloadable right away, but then also getting this file that's a really easy working tool to use. Like I just want customers to engage with us and like the number one emotion that I want them to feel when they work with us is relief. Like almost more than anything else. Like that's the number one thing that I want them to feel. Yeah. And um because I do think that being a fashion designer is like a super, <laughs> can be a super stressful job. And I know <laughs> people outside of the industry, sometimes they sort of snidely laugh at that. No, we're not necessarily saving lives directly and that sort of thing. But <laughs> it's stressful because there's so many moving parts that actually are out of your control. No matter how well you're doing your job and how detail-oriented you are, there are so many moving parts from so many different sources that so many places it could go wrong, quite frankly. And I think that really adds to the stress. So I want us to be a place to come to where people are relieved. And I guess going back to the pattern bank question, um, 
I'm not disparaging like any of the work that they put out there. They have a really formidable collection. They certainly are easy to shop from, from like what I've seen. Um, their website is like super well organized. But I, the feedback that I've heard from different customers when I've engaged them, like, like tell me what your comparison feeling is between us and Pattern Bank because I'm sitting here kind of thinking it's like a David and Goliath scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, first of all, I'm not trying to take anybody down. I actually think like I think there's plenty of work to go around. Designers need new prints, and it's really hard to just design that on your own in a bubble and that's that's what you do so I think there's there's like plenty of need for what we're doing out there but the clients that I've asked that direct question of you know like clients that I really trust won't take it the wrong way um they said what your your files are just so much easier like they just save us so much time we know it's in repeat we totally trust that it will be what it says and if for whatever reason we have a problem we pick up the phone and we talk to you directly. Oh, that's so like, nice. Yeah. yeah. We know that we're going to get you on the other end and that you're going to help us, help us figure out, oh, like you just need to shut off this layer or yeah, no problem. I can send you, you know, whatever tool you need, or I can send you a video on how to, I don't know if you've never worked with smart objects, like I'll send you a video on how to work with smart objects, you know, <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. So, um, I think it just comes down to the same question that designers have with companies offering spec work. You know, um, you could probably find somebody out there that would do a tech pack for you or something for $10, right? Um, Maybe it would be a great spec pack, but probably it wouldn't. Just like somebody who's buying a $5 logo, you're really taking your chances. Um, It may be great, it may not. A $5 logo like you really run the chance of the fact that the person who made it like slapped it together from other things that they found on the internet and it (laughs) isn't wholly original and you could get in trouble in the long run. Yeah. I mean, it's a kind of, you get what you pay for scenario and I'm not implying that like pattern pattern banks work is not good work. I'm just saying, um, I think that for the level of service and product that we provide that, you know, it's really worth paying the cost, which is actually like pretty much market rate for an original swatch, like the typical market rate if you were to go to a print show and buy from print vendors is usually between like 500 to even $700 range. So we're kind of right in the middle there. Yeah. No, I mean, I've always heard it as kind of like 500 or 600, even upwards to 1,000. So you are right in the range. Um, so I was just curious. I mean, listen, I sell sell things as well and I sell courses and there's Udemy where you can get a $10 course and then you can come buy my course which is a few hundred bucks yeah and arguably you can get some great stuff on Udemy but the customer experience is just going to be different so um I love it clearly you've thought a lot about this but I bring it up because I think it's a hurdle for a lot of people they're like well how can I do it for this price which is a fair price for me when People are selling this on Fiverr or Upwork or on Pattern Bank for $5 or $50 when, like, it takes me, you know, this many hours. So, like, I do need to charge $500 for it. Like, how can I justify that? And there's a lot of ways you can justify it. Like, one is just delivering an exceptional product. And then, two, is making that customer experience for the person just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. yeah. And also being open to customer 
feedback as much as possible. I mean, you know, it it may not always be possible to address a customer's um, desire. You know, Um, you know, some customers sometimes might come and ask something that you're not able to deliver yet. But I just think it's harder and harder to do that when you're a a, a really big company. Um, and when you're small and you're trying to cultivate relationships with your clients, you're able to take their feedback and either act on it or at least respond to it and say, wow, you know, I hadn't thought about it that way. Give us some time and like, we'll get back to you about how we can address that. Or that is a great feature for us to like, try to build something around, you know, hopefully in the coming year, like that'll be a goal for us or whatever. Like those aren't conversations that you maybe could that easily have um, with like a really big place. And I think customer service counts for a lot. And to your point, you know, you probably are always going to be able to find somebody charging a lot less than you, but you have to charge what it is that you think is a fair price for you and for the customer. And odds are you can flip that around too. I mean, I I bet you could always find somebody charging a lot more than you do and there are people paying it too. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too because I think, I mean, not to get too much off into a tangent about pricing, but it's it's a it's an interesting there's an interesting psychology behind it. But you can look into any market in any industry and there are huge pricing spans. Like go to the grocery store, you could buy a box of pasta for 99 cents, you could buy a box of pasta for 6.99. That's mm-hmm. a six time six cost six times more, but there's a reason. Maybe it tastes better. Maybe the ingredients are better. Maybe the packaging is better. Like, blah, blah, blah. All these reasons, right? You can look at that in in act, the actual product. You can go to Forever 21 or you can go, like, you know, Chanel. And there's a huge range in the price. And there's just a different experience and a different value proposition and all that other stuff. And so I think it's the same when you, as the designer, whether you're doing textiles or freelance or even as an employee, like you're providing a service, whether you're providing it to that brand as, like I said, an employee or a freelancer or a textile designer, the way you package and present and make that experience for your customer can like warrant a different price. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think um, I think marketing is everything on totally. some level. Like, yeah. Um, you know, you could probably sell almost anything if you were a genius at marketing, and yeah. I'm not pretending to be that. Um, <laughs> I still feel like there's always marketing lessons that I'm learning. Um, but hey, the fact is, like, you need to charge what you need to charge to make a living. Um, there is always going to be a customer out there who can buy that Chanel suit, and there's always going to be a customer out there who would buy something at the Forever 21 level. Like yes. There's customers for both. Yes. Sometimes there's, like, the same person could be a customer at both as yes, well. Yes, for sure. Nowadays, it's, like, completely within the realm of possibility that someone would buy a Chanel handbag and, like, wear it with a Forever 21 dress, <laughs> right? Um, totally. So, like, there, there might very well be a reason for somebody to buy something from, like, Fiverr or Upwork or something like that something that they just kind of needed a one-off they need it cheaply done they just need it right now and Mm. they just don't have the budget for it maybe a year from now they'll have the budget for you and your better service and your years of experience um or maybe they'll have a project that they feel like okay but this is a make it or break it project i need someone who really knows their stuff i can't fool around um and if you have a customer that doesn't understand the or a potential customer who doesn't understand the difference in value well, then they're not the right customer for you, probably. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. 
Okay, we could nerd out on this all day long. Yeah, um, totally. <laughs> so um, we've we have gone a good amount of time over, which is fine because it was so great to chat with you, Thea. But I would love to first of all, please remind everybody where they can find you um, at Polychrome as well as the Apparel Designers Network. What are those links? And then we'll link to them in the show notes as well. Sure. So um, Polychrome is. Uh, polychrome.design. So we're not a .com, it's .design. Great. And on social media, all of our social media is um, for poly. So that's F-O-R-P-O-L-Y. So you can find us on Pinterest and you can follow us on Instagram on that and also on Twitter. And Apparel Designers Network, um, again, you can find that at appareldesignersnetwork.com. We do have an Instagram um, account and we have a uh, Facebook, but if you go to the website that I directed you to there, you'll kind of be able to find links to all the different places where you could engage with us and find the right one for you. Okay. And that's a little bit more broad, not just for textile. That's really for like more apparel designers in general that could include textile designers. Yes. So okay. that group is comprised of, um, I like to call them fashion and apparel professionals. Okay. So we have people that are tech designers. We have people that are shoe designers. We have people that are designing accessories and textile designers. Um, so it is a relatively broad group, um, but everybody there seems really supportive um, of each other. And there have been several people there that have found like their next intern or they've found jobs on the, um, especially on the Facebook group. We've Very had cool. quite a few people like make connections where they found a contractor or found a job or asked advice about like where, you know, which factory do you think I should place this thing yeah. at? I can order X or whatever. So people in that group have been really helpful with information. I've been really pleasantly surprised at how much I've actually, like when you first start a a Facebook group, you need to be super involved in like putting up so much content. It starts to get discouraging where you're kind of like, (laughs) okay, this is like just me talking here. But then you'll reach this tipping point where, you know, first it'll be like, you realize you're no longer providing even 50% of the content. And then pretty soon you could like, you know, just almost be observing what's going on there and only posting something once a week or something. It's pretty amazing. That's super cool. Super cool. (laughs) We'll we'll definitely link to all of that. And then I would love to wrap up with the question I ask everybody at the end of the interview. And that is, what is one thing people never ask you about working in the fashion industry that you wish they would? Oh, yes. This, this question, I (laughs) I was expecting it it because I've heard it. Um, well, it's interesting because I feel like people that are outside the industry, they have a, still, they have a pretty warped view of, of what it's like to be in our industry. You know, I've had people come up and say like, have you ever met Giselle? And I'm like, no, just because I worked in fashion doesn't mean I know every supermodel or whatever personally. Um and, you know, then you always get the question of, like, is it just like Devil Wears Prada? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, there's some things that are a lot like it, but no, not exactly. Um, but the question that people never really ask is, um, do you like it? Yeah. You know? And I, for me, I think fashion's been a really interesting journey. And I think it's interesting that that question doesn't come up because even people far outside the industry seem to know that it's purported to be this really stressful industry, even if they're really mystified as to why. Yeah. Um, and 
I just can't picture doing anything else. That is just a really short answer to that. When I went to art school, um, you know, for undergrad, I already knew I wanted to be in fashion. Like I've never done anything else. And as much as it can be a really hard industry sometimes, like I like to joke, my inside joke with my friends is like fashion is your best bad boyfriend. <laughs> I love that line. Yeah, I know. I've had people say, oh my God, you need to start a blog that's called that. Yes, for sure. That's a great one. I've never heard that before. Yeah, because it's like, you know, some of like the highest points in, in my life have just been feeling like on top of the world when you just really nailed that thing or, you know, you just had this product line and it came through and it's like gorgeous and or you tripled your company's business in the category you worked in. I mean, that makes you feel... Uh Uh-oh, sorry for the fire engine. That's all right. That makes you feel fantastic, right? But then, like, there have been some real low points where you just think, oh, my gosh, I am taking such a beating. I feel so deflated. It can be hard. So I think that, like, just do you like a question? It's so fundamental. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that. (laughs) I I feel like you could speak volumes to that question. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So um, as of your episode, I will have done well over 100 interviews, and I – I've gotten an answer similar-ish to that maybe three times. Like, so oh. people, yeah, people have said, are you happy? Um, do you actually like what you do? But only a handful of times. So, But still, a, that's kind of There's consistent. a couple of people thinking about this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, it is. Um, well, congrats well, to you. Over 100 episodes. That's pretty good. Yeah, thank you. It's, uh, <laughs> it adds up pretty quickly. I, I won't lie. Um, well, thank you so much for being here with us today, Thea, and sharing everything about Polychrome and the Apparel Designers Network and everything that you've done to build to where you are. It's really amazing to hear about your story and your journey. Thank you so much. I really appreciate finally getting around to the interview. Thanks for <laughs> your patience. And I was really pleased to speak with you. So thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Thea. Great to chat with you. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Successful Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. Um, A big shout out to my husband, Mark, who handles all of the tech and editing and makes the show possible, as well as Tara, my right-hand gal, who makes sure that the show gets published, gets out to you, and does all the coordinating for the guests behind the scenes. It is a boatload of work to do a podcast, I won't lie. And having Mark and Tara behind the scenes helping really facilitates the process. So thank you to both of you. And again, thank you to you for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you. As a quick reminder, SFD is way more than just a podcast. And to get you access to my best free resources to help you get ahead in the fashion industry, head on over to soheidi.com slash email. Again, it's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com slash email. As always, if you'd like to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in the episode, check out the show notes by scrolling down wherever you're listening. And last, if you think we deserve it and you enjoy the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, a review and rating on Apple Podcasts is really, really valuable and it goes very, very far. So you can do that if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. You can do that by just scrolling down and rating the show. It takes 30 seconds, but it does mean so much to us, and it really helps the show get discovered. So we always appreciate your support on that level. Thanks again so much for listening, and I'll talk to you in the next episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. <laughs>